So I think I'm going to have to awkwardly hold my little recording device today. This is not dress friendly. Um, so for the past three weeks, we have been in part three, which is what the Bible says about poverty and wealth. And we talked about stewardship, generosity, what the Bible says about ownership of private property, um, sort of the uh, biblical model of how to share wealth. So first you support yourself, then your family, then your church, then the world. Um, we sort of recapped all of that into one sentence, which is, I am a property manager, not the owner of my wealth, and uh, we are called to be generous. Obviously, it's really hard to distill three weeks into one bullet point, but if it had to be just one, um, especially for purposes of today, that is our one bullet point. Um, so we are officially moving into the final part of our series, which is how to choose where I spend my money and time on poverty alleviation. So uh, mom and I like to call this the practical application part. So the first seven weeks, we've sort of been talking about theory of how do we look at poverty, how should we alleviate poverty, and uh, what does the Bible say, and so now that we have that framework, this is the, okay, now what does that look like in the real world? When I am asked to support an organization, is this something I should be supporting or not? And this is where the rubber hits the road, it gets kind of hard to say no to really well-meaning organizations that probably aren't being the most effective um, with their time or money. So there are three sort of pitfalls to look for uh, when you're looking at organizations um, that are trying to alleviate poverty. Paternalism, favoritism, and mission drift. Paternalism is, uh, I think we've briefly talked about in class before, it is when I am saying, I want to do this for you, instead of, I want to do this with you. Um, paternalism is, I have the answers, you don't. I have the resources, you don't. Let me, I am the one in charge of doling all this out. I am giving this to you. Um, uh, it just goes back to everything we've been saying such week, since week one, which is, we all experience poverty in different forms. Just because you may not be experiencing material poverty does not mean that you are not experiencing relational poverty. So the one in poverty who you are trying to fix is probably richer in certain areas than you are. Um, favoritism. Favoritism is simply picking and choosing one person over the other to which you are going to um, share your resources in order to alleviate poverty. Um, one of the ways to effectively alleviate poverty is to um, know your demographic, know who you're serving, but within that demographic, you don't pick and choose. And finally, mission drift. Mission drift is probably the most insidious of these three because um, paternalism and favoritism, just the definition itself, you're like, ooh, yeah, that's bad. But with mission drift, um, I mean, the best intentions pave everyone knows to where. So you can have an organization that is um, incredibly well-meaning, but just as the name implies, over time they lose sight of what their mission is. So their mission becomes something else. So what they say on paper what they are doing does not line up with their actions. So we're going to delve into each of these three just a little bit more and then uh, 
my dad is going to take over for the second half, and we actually have a series of questions that you can ask yourself that helps you determine. Say an organization approaches you, we would like you to volunteer, we would like you to donate. Um, this is sort of a primer in how you can figure out, is this something I should be supporting? <coughs> so paternalism, simply put, is just control. Um, you are controlling the resources, you are the one with the spiritual um, superiority, you have the knowledge, you are in control of the label, labor, and uh, you're managerial. Uh, I, I think pretty much all of this is self-explanatory. Um, none of these things are inherently bad, it's just how you look at it. If you're doing things for people, bad. If you're doing things with people, good. So that's pretty much your mantra for paternalism, and there's no point in beating a dead horse. I think it's a pretty easy concept to understand. I apologize if you don't understand that concept. <laughs> that's, a, that's on me. For favoritism, again, it can be summed up with just this one verse, James 2, 1 through 4. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Um, and finally, uh, mission drift. We've given you the definition, and uh, it's not often something that people intend to drift in their mission, but there are ways that you can avoid it, making sure that you're staying on target. Um, and to go over these five things, Dad's going to take over. So the guys who do corporate are just going nuts at this point. Going, yeah, Jim Collins, he finally brought it in. It took him eight weeks. But we have the greatest writer in American history is now here. Uh, when, we talk, when we talk about mission drift, this is, as Rebecca says, is insidious. Because uh, people, it happens and people don't realize it happens. They don't mean for it to happen. Uh, and every functional, high-functioning organization ha has to do this. The hardest part of organizations, those of you guys who work in corporate, is discipline. Uh, do you sit down and go over uh, what you're supposed to be doing on a regular basis. Because most companies, and it works for not-for-profits as well, go on doing their mission and they don't sit back and, and say, hey, what is our mission? Because they know what their mission is. You know, if you work in something, you know what your mission is. And so you don't sit down and necessarily uh, overtly say, here is our mission. But what happens over time is uh, 
you have incremental different changes. Uh, let's pick something. Uh, I think we were discussing. Uh, we'll pick on Tom's shoes. Uh, I've been picking on them the whole time. Uh, Tom started out with a phenomenal thought, which is if you buy a pair, give a pair. Uh, and if you go on Tom's website now, it's no longer buy a pair, give a pair. Yeah, they're now into water projects. They're into agricultural projects. Uh, they are into still giving shoes out. And what was the health. And health. And bullying. And bullying. Uh, bullying eradication. Uh, all of which are really great things, but setting yourself up as a healthcare provider is markedly different than a shoe distribution. And so it's really, really hard for a single not-for-profit entity to do both those things well. Uh, and that's, I just throw this up because when you look at missions, you've got to start with their leadership. You've got to, and uh, ignore the Jim Collins level five leadership, leaders who are humble but driven to do what's best for the company. You've got, when you start talking with interviewing uh, missions that you want to get involved with, you've got to talk to the leadership. Because how the leaders go is how the, how the group goes. And most not-for-profits or poverty alleviation tend not to be that large. Uh, I'm ignoring right now uh, Samaritan's Purse because they are enormous, uh, but they also have a great level five leader. And so when you deal with Samaritan's Purse, the whole organization acts a lot like Franklin Graham, uh, who acts a lot like Billy Graham. Uh, and so part of this is when you start looking at uh, mission groups or groups that you want to get involved with, you got to say, who's their leader? Let's talk to the leader. What's their leader really believe? Because as the leader believes, the group goes. Uh, and then when you start, uh, the other thing that uh, groups don't like to do is number three, confront the brutal facts. You got to have a lot of honesty in your group which is, if we are, uh, let's, let's create a mission. We're a mission to, uh, uh, let's pick one in Haiti. Uh, we, we, we're a mission in Haiti whose job it is to uh, create churches through home construction. Because actually, there actually is probably like 20 of those missions in Haiti right now. The brutal facts are that you've got to talk about is, if your goal is to create churches through home construction and community development, at some point in time, you've got to sit down as a group and say, hey, have we created any churches? You'd be surprised how many groups don't ever do that. They're in home construction. And, but they'll tell you, we're here to create church through home construction. And you, and you talk with them and you realize they've built a lot of homes, but they've ne there are no churches that are ever involved about that. So then you have to recognize that's not a, that's not a discipleship making church planning group, that's just a home construction group. Uh, so there's uh, no different than, uh, you know, there, there are some of the Habitat International Associates 
as we said, habitat varies largely depending on your location on how overtly Christian they are or unchristian they are. Uh, and so you have the same thing. You, you've got to uh, functional uh, groups will, will talk will talk about how often they go here. You know, we review everything we do once a year, once every three years. You know, we're pretty uh, brutal is a good word because. You know, nobody likes to say, we just wasted the last three years. We, we went around and spent time doing this, and it doesn't work. Uh, yes? This is a very awkward conversation. I have to, uh, and I hate to always have to bring this up, but I'm, I'm going to have to go here for a second because this is very important. One of the things that happened uh, with the civil rights movement and the integration of schools is this issue of neighborhood schools. And so in Nashville right now, there's always a bad. We don't need no neighborhood schools. They're bad. Neighborhood schools bad. Neighborhood schools horrible. They're terrible. They're terrible. What the black community needs is neighborhood schools that are good. And a good neighborhood school would be functional if the people in the neighborhood actually got involved in the school. In the 60s and 50s, when the school boards were not funding the schools, they were bad. They were horrible because they weren't funding it. Now they're funding it. But what I find with a lot of well-intentioned, liberal, Christian white folks is they'll say, well, neighborhood school's bad, neighborhood school's bad. Good neighborhood school's Hillsboro because they're indoctrinated and they're acculturated to support their own institutions in their neighborhood. So that awkward conversation, a lot of times, I know this especially with culture and race, it never happens. Because there are a lot of really good-intentioned white organizations that are trying to help minorities and the black community, but they're still operating like it's 1964. Or they're, or they're thinking about the African-American community like it was a long time ago, and things are just so different now. So those awkward conversations don't really happen enough. This gets all the way back to paternalism. That's knowledge paternalism. Uh, part, that's the difference of for and with. When you are dealing with somebody, you have to have that conversation with them of what do you want? Not what do I want for you? And that's really, really hard uh, because that requires time. You've got a, a, uh, a great example. I don't know what that was. What's that? Was. Kind of along this line is uh, it, it, when we go to Africa, if you give, a, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, gifting, they will never say no. But if you give someone a gift, you have created an obligation, they must give you one back. And so uh, it, it's. Uh, Yes, like go ahead. A real, real simple example. Uh, like with me, with being helping one of my girls in decorating their room. What, what do you want, you want it to look like? <coughs> Not what do I want it to look like? I mean, that's, a, that's a great example. Uh, and how can it, it, It's hard to step out of the way and say what you want in my mind is gonna look really ugly, uh, or it may not work real well. Uh, 
but sometimes you got to step out of the way and let them do that. And that's uh, knowledge and. Having just packed Natalie up yesterday with Natasha. Yes, my two cars worth of stuff. Yeah, and six hours of uh, packing. Uh, but this is really hard for North Americans. We are, as a culture, extremely gifted in man managerial skills. That's something that is just, uh, as you go through our education system, is really uh, in our culture and is taught from the very beginning on how you manage and that you will be managed and that there are skills involved. When you go overseas, this skill is not taught very much. A great example is the hospital where we're going to talk about here in a little bit, Chikande. A, it's in Malawi. A North American uh, Christian group went over and created this hospital in the year 2002. Two North Americans lived over there and were the managers. They ran the hospital and it ran very successfully for seven years. It actually made its cost, which in third world hospitals is phenomenal. Uh, most of them are not even close. Uh, but it actually, it actually ran. Uh, they did unintentional paternalism. They, they ex expected to spend the rest of their life in Malawi. The husband got uh, cerebral malaria, which required him to come back to the United States for treatment. We actually got it twice. He, he got it once, got treated there, kind of got over it, then it relapsed, and so he came back home. The wife came with him. And so they're home, and then what happened, they hadn't trained anybody on, because in their mind, they're, they're acting like North Americans, which is that the next man up knows some basically how to manage because he's been watching me. No. That doesn't happen. So it took about 18 months for the hospital to spend down to closure. Yes. Uh, well, and so that's, un that's paternalism, it's unintentional. They didn't mean to do that. Yeah. They just didn't sit back and then go into uh, this to say, you know, the brutal facts of what happens if I'm not here? Who else am I training? And the whole concept of they were functioning, they weren't functioning in developmental mode. They were still, in, as far as the managerial skills and the knowledge skills, they were in uh, relief mode. They were giving it to them. They weren't training them how to do that. But, but I don't think, this is so awkward, paternalism in some instances, it's not the worst thing in the world for uneducated people. An example, when I started my business, I do start doing offense, I went into huge debt. But one of the things that I am just now realizing, man, if I'd had good credit, it wouldn't have been as bad. But my credit was so jacked up in college because my first year in college, I got a Chase credit card and another mass and visa and all these things. I said, man, I got to pay this stuff back. I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> but if someone, if I had had a good paternal 
and this is awkward, white Christian come and say, have you ever thought about preserving your credit so that eventually you can eventually get the thing, the business that you want? I would be in a much better financial situation. See, the assumption that he's making, I don't think that that's necessarily, but it is paternalism but in a lot of ways. I, I, I'll expl explain to you the difference in uh, everyone needs a ment mentorism and paternalism are different. All right. It's the difference of with and for. If I came to you and said when you were a college freshman, you're a freaking idiot. Okay. You need to tear those cards up. What would you have done? Besides, got really mad at me. Right. Yeah. But mentorism is going. You know, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And I let you decide that I'm going to tear those cards up. Not that I come in and force you to tear your card. Okay. Paternalism is I come in and I force you to do something because I know better. Or I'll do it for you. Well, I'll do it for you. That also is another insidious paternalism if, because that's not teaching you anything. That's actually, dis that dis disempowers, is that a right word? Right, to me this whole thing is just like parenting on a boy's day. I mean, you know, for a two-year-old, you have to do for them when they are two, you know? But it is a growth process. I mean, yes, as parents, you do have, you know, knowledge that they don't have and stuff that they don't have. But if you're not developing them into self-sufficiency, yeah. you're crippling them. And it's, yeah. the, I mean, it's just the same thing. On a that's the whole thing of you got, when you deal with the mission group, you got to look, are they relief? Are they development? or the recovery or development. Basically, it, it comes down to relief or development. And so, a lot of people think they are development, but in reality, they're relief. I'm sure the people in the hospital, in your example, thought they were in development. Oh, yeah, oh, in fact, I... Uh, because, because it was a long-running enterprise, and it was something that was, was serving its purpose and make, meeting its goals. But, and it was working. Right, that's, that's, that's what I mean. Why they were there, but, but that was part, part of what... Right. Right. That's right. Yeah, my, that's right. Mom and dad, at some point you've got to be an adult. And uh, the other thing you've got to look at, and they didn't, they didn't understand, it's a hedgehog concept. If you've got to know what lights your fire, where's your passion, and where are your skills, and where are your resources. And as a not-for-profit, uh, you have to know those things. The for-profit and not-for-profit world are exactly the same. If you don't know where your passion is, you're not going to do a really good job at it. If you don't know where your skills at, if, for instance, my kids were all laughing at me because I love to sing. I cannot sing. This is why I'm not a preacher in the Church of Christ. Besides, I don't have preacher hair. Uh, I also can't sing, which is a requirement to be a Church of Christ uh, full-time pastor. Uh, but what? That's right. So yeah, I, I could get the I could get a, you know a, a toupee or something. I could be a preacher, but uh, you can't buy a voice, but you can buy. I hear that's true. Hey, our North could never say that. That's right, but it's you know. Is, is useful. I'm going to let you decide whether. That's right. So you know, so you have to look at where your skills are, and you know, I could never be a professional performer. It, it wouldn't work well. Uh, and so when we go down this decision, what we're going to try to do here is outline a matrix for you. So you can say, how do I 
as, I, as opportunities come my way, how do I make decisions whether I go down those opportunities or not? Uh, remember, all the way at the very beginning, you know, our goal as Christians, our job is to make disciples. That's our number one goal. And that's our basic goal for everything. You're here to make disciples. Uh, so the first thing you got to know, you got to know who you are. Uh, what are my gifts and skills? Once again, doing a music ministry for me is probably not a really good fit. Uh, I could organize one. I just couldn't. I can't, you know, I can't go to Brazil and do, you know, concerts that uh, I've got. One of my partners at work is really good friends with a guy that does that, does concerts for hundreds of thousands of people in, the, in uh, Central and South America. I can't do that. That's not my gift set. Uh, the other one is where's God opening doors? Uh, a lot of times, you know, we're, we're, we're Americans, right? We, kick, we don't need the open door. We kick the door in. If we see the door and we want to go, you know, we're going to kick that door in. Uh, I can tell you from experience and from sitting here for doing medical overseas missions for 25 years at this point, it's a whole lot easier if God opens the door because then it's really easy. Uh, if you try to kick the door in, I'm, I'm laughing because Jay and I know in Peru, we've been trying to set up something in Peru for 10 years at this point and can't get any traction. In that same interval, we set up the whole hospital in Malawi in less than a year because God opened the door. We weren't trying to kick it in. Uh, and then what goes along with that is with whom do I have relationships? Because it's all relational. It's really hard to do stuff by yourself. Uh, where should I spend my time? You have a duty to investigate those who you support. Uh, this gets into uh, that concept of uh, I give money to people. It's between them and God what they do with the money. How many have you heard that before? A lot. Uh, I'm going to steal this from Dave Ramsey. He, I heard him talk about this on the radio the other day. He says, God gave you the money to steward. You have a responsibility to use the gifts that God has given you in ways that glorify him. You can't, that's not a, uh, to be the lawyer, that's not a delegatable duty. I can't give, I can't give my stuff to Phil and say, Phil, you're in charge. You know, you, ha you do have an obligation to investigate things. And uh, so... This is the reason that I think it's very difficult to get behind sometimes uh, big social programs that government manages because you can't investigate that. It's going to go a direction you can never understand or fathom. And, and, and that's... It, 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 there are sometimes getting behind large entities are difficult because those large entities, they undergo mission drift. Uh, they may have started out at once upon a time doing a specific thing that you're, you feel very passionate about, that you have gifts and skills for, and then you find your money and your time is now spent in a totally different area. That's exactly what we found out with Tom's, because we were trying to think of an example, and it's like, well, let's just do Tom's. One for one. It's pretty easy. We get on the website and we find out bullying, water, you know, water, healthcare, really? And the, the partners that are uh, involved with them, I mean, it was incredible.
big mouth. And I'm like, it is so huge now. There's no way to even figure out what the heck they're doing. Right. Uh, and and, and when, I, when I was in the Air Force, we, it, it's almost mandatory for junior officers to sign up for the what they call the combined campaign. And the combined campaign is, is charitable giving, but it is the combined campaign. The money, most of it goes to United Way. Well, goodness gracious, United Way is such a big umbrella. They, they fund everything. I mean, I, I'm supposed to give a check. I finally figured out a loophole that I could kind of earmark what I wanted to go where I wanted it to go. But it, it, it takes some doing. You have to really navigate that, right? Anyway. Well, I mean, and that's that duty to investigate. You know, it's, it is easier a lot of times to go with the flow. You know, and say, I'm just going to do this. Uh, and so, but that's where you do have a duty to investigate who you support. God has given you gifts and talents. Your job is to, uh, to get back, you know, don't bury them under the sand if you're the one talent person. Uh, all right, so, so moving down that, that matrix, so, so you understand who you are and where your gifts are. Uh, and so, you got to kind of go to what you know. The first question is, what are the problem they're trying to solve? This you think should be a really easy thing to find out. It is not. Uh, it's surprisingly hard to figure out a lot of missions out there. Oh, I'm a picture of that. I can probably send that to you on the email. Probably on computer. It's probably on a computer. That's right. It's probably really close. Uh, You'd be surprised how hard this is to find out what groups do, because especially groups that have been around a long time. You ask them, what do you do? And they, they list 50 things for you. No, no, no. I said, no, what are you about? What's your mission statement? Uh, and you look at it and say, what are they trying to solve? Are they a relief organization or are they a development organization? Uh, a, a great example is... Uh, Dave Vanderpool and uh, Beyond. Live Beyond. Live Beyond. Uh, I got called in uh, with Dick Gigi and a couple guys about four years ago, five years ago, to sit down with uh, Dave. Uh, he, before he did Live Beyond, he had a thing called MMDR, Mobile Medical Disaster Relief, which, guess what they did, based on the name? Disaster Relief. Relief, there you go. Uh, you structure relief dramatically different than you structure development. David went to Haiti. We were there at the same time. He got involved in, in, in uh, Thomasu, which is a little town outside of uh, Port-au-Prince. So he wanted to do development. He did not recognize that he really wanted to do development. What he recognized is I want to help these people. But his MMDR was totally structured as a disaster relief. And so he struggled with how do I do this? So we, a group of us who do this sat down with him on a series of Saturdays and helped him walk through how do you change a relief organization to development organization. And so now he's doing development. He doesn't do disaster relief anymore. He's now doing development. Uh, but that was part of that. He, it took him about six months to get his mind around that I'm not doing relief anymore. 
Uh, and I guarantee you when the Himalayan uh, earthquakes went up in uh, Nepal, that he woke up and started thinking about, how do I send a crew there? And then realized, I can't. Because if I take, if I take away from, if I send people to Nepal, I can't do stuff in Haiti. And so part of that's understanding who you are and what your group is. What problem are you trying to solve? Am I relief? Am I development? And li- it, it, well, yeah. it also goes to that. It's like it's not necessarily even what problem you're trying to solve or what you want to try to solve. It's, it's you recognize you have limitations. He he clearly had the skill set to do relief because he'd done relief before, but he he was limited in his resources and his personnel and his. Well, it's like everything. It, it gives back to confront the brutal facts. You only have X amount of time, dollars, money, and skill. Where are you going to spend it? And so uh, Dave was all over the world. He was in Tanzania. He was in uh, Indonesia. He was, he was in Ghana. He was in, when I sat down with him the first time with Dick and him, and there's like five of us in the room, he starts listing off everywhere he's been in the last two years. And you're going like, airlines don't travel as much as you do. What, what do you really want to do? And then when you talk to him, you realize what he really wanted to do was change the culture somewhere. I said, well, you can't do that flying in one week out of 20. You have to live somewhere, which has ended up doing what he did, which is selling everything and moving to Haiti. Uh, What are they actually doing? Compare what they're actually doing to what they say they're doing. Uh, There's a lot of people out there that those two things do not mesh up. confronting the brutal facts, are they actually changing anything? Are they spending a lot of time, money, and skill and accomplishing nothing? If you say my job is to uh, uh, make disciples through uh, a clothed ministry, teaching people how to sew ministry, the bottom line is, am I making disciples? Am I affecting change? Am I changing the people I'm working with? Or am I simply transferring stuff from here to there. Because if it's stuff, it's back to relief. They don't need relief if there's not been a crisis. And that's part of that is that decision matrix, when you get involved in a project, you gotta look at, has there been a crisis? If the answer is no, there's no crisis, you don't need relief. You need development. And that's, but as we talked about three or four weeks ago, relief is easier. It's quantifiable. I sent, uh, we have the same people that ran the hospital in Malawi were in another project and they would send stuff to Malawi. At one point in time, they sent 90 40 foot containers in a single year to the country of Malawi with, with uh, medical relief stuff, sponges, beds, 90. They had some other stuff in there, yeah. Uh, but 90 containers, that's like a phenomenal number. Uh, I mean, I'm not even sure I could find that much stuff to put in 90 containers, but they shipped 90 in one year, which was, it, it was a period of time when they needed stuff because they were having a uh, drought, people were starving, they had taken all the money out of the healthcare system and put it into food importation. So they needed significant amounts of relief in that period of time. They continued that same ministry. In fact, we were just on their website and uh, they were collecting pill bottles to send to Malawi. You know, those little pill bottles that 
we do. And because someone said, well, that, they don't have pill bottles in Maui. How do, they, how do you send their pills home if we don't have pill bottles? So they sent a 40-foot container of air, which is pill bottles. They shipped that over there. And I'm laughing because in the third world, you don't send bottles home. You send little plastic bags. Anyone who's done healthcare for an extended period of time understands you can buy plastic bags locally. And you put their pill, they're like this big, you put 30 pills in it, you zip it, you put a sticker on it, boom. And when they're done, they throw that away. Uh, because they don't, they don't, where are they gonna store a pill bottle? And they don't have a printer that you can put, a, you, you can write on a plastic bag, you can't write on, you ever tried to write on a little round pill bottle with a marker? <laughs> it don't work. Uh, and, and they're brown, you can't see through them, you can't write on them. I mean, there's lots of reasons why that's not a really good idea. But they, they put a 40-foot container full of, of pill bottles over there because it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And they didn't sit down and said, people, does it really help anybody? Do you really need those? So, uh, so when you investigate things, uh, if any of the answers are unclear, it's probably not really an efficient use of your time and money unless your ministry is called to organize things. There are people that help people straighten out uh, ministries, and let's get back to where we started from. And so, yes? I'm, I am uh, intrigued by, as you were talking about management theory and, and for-profit organizations and, and relief for our uh, not-for-profit organizations, I think about government too, and it's all the same. It is absolutely the same, and the tendency to get things complex and to build uh, just a, a uh, set of services that is all over the place and lots of complexity is the, is the natural tendency. And the, part of the reason for it, if you're on the for-profit side, you get promotions by coming up with ideas, adding services, adding features, and you get promotions, and then you add more features to the product, and you add more to it. And over time, it gets really complex and expensive. Uh, and the same thing happens if you think about with Tom's. You start out with shoes, and then you think, well, we, if we added this, and the person who's coming up with those ideas and doing it is getting promoted. Same thing in government. A government mm -hmm. bureaucrat doesn't get promoted by serving fewer people. They get promoted by serving more people and providing more services. And we wonder why government keeps growing. And you can. In, in business, you can disrupt a whole industry by coming out with a product or service that's simpler, easier to access, maybe not as good as something else, but it's uh, less expensive and it, it appeals to a lot of people. And that, that's the same. Well, you see, you see this cycle all the time. Uh, Jane was asking, we drove by a Saturn Parkway. She goes, do they still make Saturns anymore? I said, no, it's a natural ci business cycle. Uh, the guy who became the CEO of GM made his mark by Heck, just you know, cutting off divisions. Saturn, uh, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, that Hummer. boom Sound. Hummer. Yeah, all those got chopped. Why? Because over time they bigger, 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 and then so it's this natural cycle of people then come in and they become the CEO by saying, "I'm going to make you efficient again." Chop, 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 chop. The same thing occurs in the not-for-profit world, in the church world. Things get started, and once they get started, they're really hard to stop. And so you need a, uh, a period of pruning periodically. That's the concept of, you gotta sit down and say, is it doing what we think we're doing? And is it accomplishing 
am I making change? Am I making disciples? And it may be really painful, but you, but as a church or as an individual or as a group, you got to say, are we doing what we think we're doing? Are we making disciples? And you may say, we've got to stop doing what we're doing. Well, you know, definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. If you're not making disciples, if you're not affecting change, something has to change. And that's the hardest part of institutions, not-for-profit, for-profit, governmental, is that they don't want to change because we've always done it that way. And so-and-so, in the church, it's really bad. So-and-so started this, and you know, by then they've got a statue out front, uh, either, either real or figuratively, because uh, at Otter Creek we got statues. We, we don't have any actually when sitting out here, but there, there's, some, there's some minefields you can step into pretty quick. Uh, and so, but part of that is understanding that. Uh, warning signs for things. Uh, their mission cannot be still to one sentence. You can't understand what they're doing. Uh, they have too many fingers and too many pies. Nobody does lots of things really, really well. You can do lots of stuff kind of average, but it's really hard to do lots of things really, really well. There, because most organizations and most churches and most not-for-profits don't have that many good leaders, that you can have enough leaders to do lots of stuff well. And so part of it is understand what you do well and don't do the other stuff. Uh, and then uh, look for favoritism, paternalism, and mission drift. Uh, and then probably the next two weeks, uh, we're out of time, we're gonna come to some real-world examples of what missions are. Uh, I'm gonna pick one that I do. Uh, and I'm going to pick one that Otter Creek does. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll investigate those and see, see if it, how, they, how they meet the test. All right, see you all next week.